and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian O'Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Karen Woody, Assistant Professor of Law at Washington and Lee School of Law. We will discuss her article, The New Insider Trading, which will be published in the Arizona State Law Journal. So welcome to the show, Karen. Thank you for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. This was a fun article to read, especially because uh, you know I had some exposure to securities law and securities regulation when I was working at at Sullivan and Cromwell. But for listeners who may not have practiced in the securities area, I wonder if you could start by just explaining to people what exactly insider trading is and why it's prohibited, right? I imagine a lot of people might have heard the term, but not really understand exactly what it entails. Yeah, Brian, it's a great question. And really, that sort of very general, basic question is the million dollar question in some sense when we talk about insider trading. It is um, it is trading on uh, trading securities based on information that is considered uh, material and not public. But how we regulate that really has been um, the conundrum that's, you know, still still in front of us today. In fact, just last week, the U.S. House of Representatives passed uh, a new bill, um, and so it's going to go to the Senate. But again, trying to get their arms around how we prohibit people from trading um, on, you know, essentially secrets or confidential information. And so really the question is, you know, what? What is the problem with that? Isn't that something that happens pretty regularly? The answer is probably yes. Um, and so, you know, who is injured when that happens? Um, and so there's all these like, fascinating articles and theories about this and sort of who is injured. Is this a theft of property of the company that, you know, the information is about? Is it um, a fraud on the market, meaning our markets now are not fair because certain people have an advantage? So all of those questions get wrapped into figuring out, you know, this type of, you know, how are we going to prohibit this activity? So what's fascinating, I think, about insider trading is that for a long time, um, it wasn't, it was seen as like, if you have inside information, you just can't trade at all. That was just an open, shut, done deal. That was, you know, it's called basically the disclose or abstain rule. So if you have inside information, you have to abstain from trading, or else the alternative is disclose and make it public information, essentially. Um, and in the 80s, Justice Powell basically carved out, in some way, an exception to that. And, and the idea was that there are some instances where insider trading might not be bad because it gives us, you know, an understanding. And you know, if there is a, a company that is entirely fraudulent, maybe we need to make sure the market. Uh, we'll react to that. So there's a very famous case called Dirks versus SEC that is passed and you know decided in 1983. And Justice Powell writes that uh, opinion. And there's so many great articles about this decision and how it does create a bit of a watershed moment for insider trading because essentially, and I should say that this is um, particular to an insider trading scheme where there's a tipper, so someone who knows information, and they tip someone else. And that other person, the tippee, is who trades. Um, the backstory of the case was that someone who was an insider realized that this one company was sort of ripe with fraud. Imagine sort of an 
senior on level fraud, and he basically tries to be a whistleblower about it. And there's more, there's more sort of detail that, but essentially it is nearly a whistleblower type case where he tells people this was a fraud. You know, you should, you should be aware of that. Um, and he works for a brokerage firm to some of his clients traded on. So not only was this sort of the SEC realizes that there is fraud in this company, and so they go after the company, but then they turn around and also go after this guy, Dirks, who's essentially the whistleblower in some sense. And they basically say, hey, you tipped other people, um, you know, and so that was essentially trading on inside information. You were a tipper. And so it was one of those situations where it, that seemed sort of unfair. You know, everyone was trying to sort out how this will work out because it's true that, like, if he had tipped this inside information and someone traded, that's insider trading. So Justice Powell carved out essentially an exception that says, well, hold on. In tipper to be situations, uh, we're going to say that, you know, if, if the tipper gets a personal benefit from the tip, so if there's some sort of quid pro quo, which is certainly a phrase of the day, this is, this is the same idea there, if you got something out of tipping, then then it's insider trading. But there are certain instances where we hope that people will um, disclose information if it, you know, gets to essentially what we call price discovery. That if, if it is helpful, if it's a whistleblower type situation, you're doing this without getting any benefit to yourself, that might be a good thing. So from that um, case, we get this whole new idea of, well, what does it mean to receive the benefit for tipping? And that has set us on this path of the doctrine of insider trading where people are trying to get their arms around that. One last thing I'll say about your question there is that insider trading is not in the code, meaning it's not prohibited by statute. It is uh, falls under, to bring a case for insider trading, you bring it under um, section 10B or rule 10B5 um, of the Securities uh, Exchange Act. Um, or the, the Rule 10b-5 is the SEC regulation that is affiliated with that. Um, and it just, in that case, the prohibition simply says, you know, it's unlawful to trade or use any, sorry, I should say, it's unlawful to employ any device or scheme or artifice to defraud or to make any untrue statement of material fact or to engage in any act or practice or course of business which would operate as a fraud. So the term insider trading isn't in that. Um, and instead, we have essentially uh, a prohibition on an activity that is driven entirely by common law. So each new case um, that comes up, there's a new sort of contour or definition to what the activity is we're, we're trying to prohibit. So you can see when, it, when it's set up in that way that a lot of this will be driven by courts and by each new set of facts that a new case brings that adds a new sort of definitional quality to this activity. That, that is right for a lot of um, broad interpretation, I will say. Well, so just to get super clear about it, under the kind of Rule 10b-5 version of insider trading, how is the government defining insider trading in what I understand to be kind of almost like a federal common law type Way and what kind of what kind of limits, if any, uh, did the courts place on the ability of the government to expand the definition of insider trading? Because it sounds like that's what Dirks and other cases were doing. If I'm right, sure. So um, 
essentially, like I said, the, the F base, it is trading on material non-public information. Um, and so there, I should say there are a few different theories under which the government brings it. There's the classical theory where I am the insider and I trade for my own benefit. So that's a pretty open shut deal. Like I'm not allowed to trade because I am, you know, the attorney for a firm that's going to merge or for a, you know, a company that'll merge. I have some access to information and I trade for my own benefit. And that's a pretty open shot, what's considered a classical theory. And the, the reason Dirks and some of these other cases get a little more interesting is that, and there's more color to this is because it's not that. It's someone who is the insider then tipping someone down the line. And you get, you know, in some of the more recent cases, this idea that there's almost a daisy chain of information in some places where you, know, you can't ever link the final trader to the original source of information. Um, and amazingly, that is insulated under the Dirk's personal benefit test because the link there was, well, yeah, if you were just, if this information gets out and you're not benefiting from uh, leaking it, essentially, then it is what it is. It's sort of where we, where uh, Powell came out on that. Like, well, if you can't prove the personal benefit, then maybe this is, just, you know, information that is now, you know, essentially available to the market. So maybe we don't, we shouldn't be as worried about that. But that does, you know, when you think about insider trading or you watch a show like Billions or, you know, Wall Street or whatever, you know, sort of the, when you imagine what insider trading looks like, you can see how that, you know, insulates what is, you know, kind of exactly what we think about when we think about insider trading. These, hedge funds or various other firms that get, you know, the edge that basically could be inside information. But if they are far enough removed from the source of that information, they can insulate themselves um, from, from prosecution or from an SEC enforcement action. And so that's why this definition of what does it mean to get a personal benefit if you were the tipper has dictated so much, um, you know, there's been not, numerous cases that try to sort that out. So personal benefit under the Dirks test is a pretty obvious one, a pecuniary gain, a true quid pro quo. I paid you for that information. But then there were two other categories that Powell included in Dirks that he said would count as a personal benefit. And that's where it gets sticky. One of those was considered reputational benefit. Um, that could translate to future earnings. That's already a bit of a nebulous idea. And then the last one was um, a presumption of a personal benefit if the person you tipped was a trading relative or friend. And that was essentially, you know, if I'm tipping off my spouse, and it's basically someone essentially trading in your shoes. So it's just like almost a derivative of the classical insider trading. Someone who's so close to me that I might as well have been doing the trade. So what has been interesting is that there have been sort of questioning, you know, truly the name, the uh, definition is a trading relative or friend. Like, what does that mean? And so you get you get more and more cases where how far does that extend out? Who is a who is a trading friend? And so that's where um, it gets it gets interesting, at least to me, in terms of like now the distance of a relationship might determine if you could be prosecuted for insider trading or not. 
So that's um, that's sort of where we are. That's the back background of some of the case law up until now. Mm. Well, so I wonder what kind of problems that creates from a regulatory perspective. I mean, do you see the primary problem as being the inability of the government to regulate behavior that we might want to see curtailed? Or is it more of like an uncertainty problem, like both the government and or the potentially regulated parties just don't know when liability attaches and when it doesn't? Kind of both of those or is something else that I'm missing? I actually, yeah, I think both to some extent. I mean, certainly the latter idea that you brought up begs sort of almost a rule of lenity type issue. Like, we saw with the vagueness almost like what exactly is prohibited and that's hard to get your arms around. And so, you know, tie goes hopefully to the defendant on that. If it's hard to understand what, what is prohibited, but then, you know, I, I do think there's also just um, the, the general idea that it's hard to figure out what the relationship is. Um, and so how, how do we curtail this? So I should say that um, this te- this idea teed up sort of, me looking at this more closely. And then there was a new case that came up to the Second Circuit that was just argued last week or a few weeks ago that brought up what I'm sort of getting at with my paper, which is what if we can end around all of this? Um, and so there is a criminal code, a different code that prohibits what is just called securities fraud in general. And the statutory language on that is sort of equally nebulous, just sort of an intent to defraud. You know, insider trading is not mentioned in it. And it hasn't actually been used very often as um, the grounds for an insider trading prosecution until a little bit recently. And even then, there's only been a few cases. But this interesting case that just came um, to the Second Circuit had the rare instance where the jury faced with an insider trading case and the facts there, decided that they could only find, they convicted the defendants under this general securities fraud. It's actually 18 U.S.C. 1348. And it's just, again, a blanket, just general fraud that relates to a securities. But they couldn't, under the same facts, find um, convict them under Rule 10b-5 because, as we now know, you had they had to walk through all of these hoops of figuring out if there was a person benefit and who had, you know, who knew about that and did the tipper know about the benefit or um, and the tippy know about the benefit. And so it was it was one of those things where the jury I think was like, wow, insider trading as we have sort of as it has been developed in the courts over the last fifty years is hard sometimes to pin down. So they just punted in some sense and found uh, the defendant's guilty under just a general securities fraud uh, um, provision of the, of the criminal code. So I, I, my argument is a little bit um, suggesting that, that maybe all of this hubbub, all of this, you know, um, uh, the efforts to try to define that personal benefit concept may be uh, circumvented by going forward with uh, criminal insider trading under this other statute. And that might be something we see more of. So that's what I, that's what I try to tackle in my piece. Mm. Well, so I, as I understand it, this statute was part of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. I wonder if there's any indication as to sort of what it was intended initially to cover. And if you could talk a little bit about like to date, 
how courts have interpreted it to also cover insider trading, whatever else it was intended to do? Right. That's a great question. So to answer the first part, you're correct. It was passed as part of Sarbanes-Oxley, and it was fashioned on sort of general uh, mail and wire fraud. We've seen some um, bank fraud, healthcare fraud, uh, similar statutes that, again, are sparse in some sense in terms of what they cover, but generally cover a basic fraud scheme and then dependent on what industry that occurs in is, you know, if it's in healthcare, it would be healthcare fraud. So the text of it really just says it's it would be prohibited to defraud any person in connection uh, with the sale of a security um, or that's essentially the gist of it. Um, and so it was passed, like you said, in 2002 as part of Sarbanes-Oxley. The legislative history from that um, indicates that it was intended to be as broad as it could be, to, to sort of ensnare any and everything. I think Congress was sort of so um, shocked and frustrated by the Enron, sort of the, what, what really launched Sarbanes-Oxley and the, and the, um, the events that, had, that drove Congress to pass that fairly sweeping bill, that they didn't want to pigeonhole it to specific types of activity. And in fact, Senator Leahy had um, pushed for this and said this is really to supplement any, you know, technical securities laws where defendants could find loopholes. Like we do want this to be a, you know, this umbrella law that would catch um, as much as possible to, to assist prosecutors in, in finding, um, being able to meet elements that are where they might not in other situations. So. It does, it maps on somewhat to the to insider trading for that reason, which is there are some now um, tricky elements you need to show to prove insider trading under 10b-5 that you wouldn't need to show under 1348. Um, however, there haven't been many, um, many uh, trials or sort of cases being brought under this charge for insider trading. There were two important ones that came out of uh, the Northern District of Georgia. It seems there maybe was one um, sort of creative prosecutor there who realized they could bring an insider trading case. In that situation, in both of those cases, they brought the charge for insider trading only under the 1348 charge and not under 10b-5. The case I referenced earlier in the Second Circuit brought the charges under both. And that is where the jury could only find um, the defendants guilty for 1348 and not 10b-5. Again, because to meet the elements of 10b-5 with this personal benefit test, the, you know, the jury just essentially said, we don't, we don't see that, but we do see just a general securities fraud um, activity. So it's a new thing. That's kind of why I was so fascinated to dig into this. It hasn't, it hasn't been brought up a lot. Um, and I do think maybe prosecutors are starting to see this. Um, one thing I will say is that it is uh, 1348 is found in the criminal code, meaning only the DOJ would bring this um, type of a case. Whereas 10b-5 um, is one that you can have both criminal and civil um, enforcement. So the SEC can bring civil 
insider trading uh, actions and the DOJ can as well. So it would cut the SEC out, which query if that sort of misses the purpose of, you know, what we're trying to regulate in some sense. Uh, but um, so that is an interesting sort of difference um, between those two bills, those two uh, statutes as well. Mm. Well, are are there are there like textual or contextual reasons to think that courts haven't or won't read the personal benefit uh, test from 10b-5 into this 1348 provision? Yeah, I mean, that is really sort of the nugget of what I'm so interested in because because of the way that Dirks is written. It carves out situations wherein insider trading is not per se illegal. And so if that's sort of what I was trying to, to wrestle with in this article is that if we then just stand up a new, it's not new, it's from Sarbanes-Oxley, but we have this other means to charge it and we just import essentially insider trading as bad, I think that's missing some of the nuance we've seen that the courts have wrestled with over the last 50 years in 10b-5 jurisprudence. And so um, that was one of the things I was, I was trying to get at. And I, one of the first thing I looked at is whether or not these are different charges at all, like whether or not there's a potential Blackberger multiplicity of charges issue. If you're charging these two things, aren't you doing the same thing? Um, and that should be you know, essentially a violation of due process and it seems that, you know, in the few cases where they have brought both, no one's all that worried about that because there are some, as you point out, contextual differences um, between the two, meaning that um, one, uh, 1348 requires uh, knowing violation. Let me make sure I'm right here. Um, the defendant needs to act knowingly, and 10b-5 requires proof of willfulness. Um, so, you know, whether or not that is enough to, to distinguish the two, it seems that, you know, no one seems to have been worried about that. Um, but, you know, I do think that's an interesting idea. Do we import the 50 years of how we have defined insider trading into a prosecution under, for insider trading under a broader securities uh, fraud umbrella? Um, and, you know, the answer is they, we, I'm not sure. We're still sort of sorting that out um, in the courts. And I, I think another interesting idea there is, you know, what is the implication if we do or do not do that? Um, you know, do we in, incorporate the personal benefit test into 1348? Or is it just a general new, hey, I found intent to defraud. That's all we need, essentially, here. And in a, in a scheme to defraud, we pass go, and you're, you're guilty under 1348. Does that do sort of um, does that do lose a lot of the nuance of insider? Mm -hmm. Well, so I wonder if you have any thoughts about how the DOJ is likely to use thirteen forty eight in the future, and more importantly, maybe thoughts about you know assuming that they do start to use it more in an insider trading context. I mean, what do you expect courts to to do with that going forward? Well, I mean, we'll see when we get um, the Second Circuit decision in the in the case I was referencing earlier. Um, I think it's pronounced Blasiak, but it was just argued. So there, there was sort of um, an idea of teeing that up. Um, of what does that mean when you have this 
uh, jury finding guilt under one of these statutes and not the other. And, and we haven't imported the definitions of the securities fraud to 1348. Uh, so we might see that the court say, this is fine. I see no problem with operating under this new statute. And there, there's scant jurisprudential, jurisprudential you know, precedent on this one, but that's that is what it is. You get sort of a, a new chance to figure out how um, you would prosecute insider trading on a, essentially a blank slate. Um, and if that, if they give that, you know, green light, I, I expect we would see a, a decent amount of, um, of prosecutions being brought under it. You know, I should also note that this isn't entirely novel because the DOJ has brought insider trading cases under mail and wire fraud. So just the general, even more broad, not even related necessarily to securities, but just we found evidence of a fraud and the use of mail or wires. And so that um, is, is not a new idea. So there certainly are some critics who think this isn't anything different, and that the DOJ always have had this, this at their fingertips under one type of fraud or another. Um, but I do think it would be an interesting, uh, interesting to see. I think the DOJ would avail themselves of this, of this uh, statute for insider trading cases more often, certainly. Mm. Well, so Karen, in, in closing, at, at the beginning of the interview, you referenced sort of the way in which our kind of theory of justification for insider trading depends upon, or regulating insider trading, depends upon our sort of broader theory of justification of securities regulation and kind of what interests we're trying to to promote. I mean, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how that theoretical question might or perhaps should inform the way we think about, you know, arguably expanding the scope of government regulatory authority over insider trading through this this provision that you identify? Yeah, wow, that's a great question. Um, there have been sort of, there are sort of foundational theor theories here um, or, or, or bases about what people think is the best theory to move forward in terms of regulating uh, insider trading. And, and we've seen, you know, there's a number of, excellent, excellent securities law professors who, who tangle with this fairly regularly. The sort of driving, I think, uh, or more, most common theory is really this idea of um, there certainly is a property rights idea here. This is the equivalence of a theft of corporate information. So we've seen that get a lot of traction recently. And so that is what we are trying to curb and that is what we are punishing is that you have stolen something the victim here is the company um, whose information is being misused um, that is certainly a, a, like i say a, a leading theory that we've seen um, promulgated by a number of uh, prominent securities officers you know, there's like i said this other idea that there's a general fraud on the market meaning the market is now an unfair playing field and so the market itself is, is a victim here. There's, um, there's certainly uh, people who would think that the, the other sides of the trade, if, if such a thing is, is available to the short sellers, or someone who, who still is injured because someone had um, a trade that benefited only them via in, inside information. Uh, I think that is why I find insider trading such a, a 
rich um, area to explore because how you define the activity you're trying to prohibit or to regulate um, it sometimes is dictated by who you think has been injured or hurt and sometimes certainly in insider trading that's hard to pin down so that's where you do get these these new schools of thought or different streams of thought of what how to regulate it based on who we're worried about protecting um, and so I mean like I said I think it as it stands out, most people still do fall under the idea that the company is uh, the one that is a victim. There's some breach of duty between the insider and um, the loyalty that that person should have to the company whose stock is being traded. Um, and so that's that I think will still be defining sort of how we regulate it for the foreseeable future. But um, there's a lot there. There's a lot there. Mm, well. Karen, thanks so much for coming on the show. It sounds like a really dynamic area of law that's changing right at the moment. It'll be interesting to see where the courts go with this going forward. Wow, thank you so much for having me. This is this has been a delight.
Now, say, Uncle Noah went to Yale, but he had a work, I told you. When an amorous man got off the tail, gotta make my baby some dough. By low McGilliam, by low McGilliam, by low fell high, the water daily cried. Boom, bam, jim, jam, boom, bam, jim, jam. Boom, bam, jim, jam, the waltzy daily cry. Boom, bam, ba, jim, jam, boom, bam, ba, jim, jam. Boom, bam, jim, jam, the waltzy daily cry. Bilo, McGilliam, bilo, McGilliam, bilo, sell high. The waltzy daily cry. Phonograph records, how they sell, 222 and three quarters. 